Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. If you would go ahead and open your Bible, go ahead and open to Psalm 78. And uh, we're going to continue looking at this subject of a lamb for every house. Now, we've been on a series on the blood of Jesus, looking at what the blood of Jesus, uh, the significance of the blood. We've been looking at why is it uh, valuable to heaven? Why is it... Uh, uh, effective against hell and uh, how do we apply it to our own life and we've been looking at that for a number of weeks Uh, we got into last week looking at the blood of the lamb looking at Passover seeing it as it was Easter and we were looking at uh, this this phrase a lamb for every house I was uh, looking at the Passover and it really struck me that stood out to me and it says this phrase in, in Exodus chapter 12 it says and there was a lamb according to the household of their father comma a lamb for every house and uh, that, that just really stood out to me. And the reason it stood out to me was because two weeks ago, I was back here praying during worship, and the Lord interrupted my prayer, and he said this. He said, I died for your family. I am zealous for your legacy for the generations of the Olsons. And it, it really kind of took me by surprise. That's not what I was praying about whatsoever. I was just in worship. And uh, the Lord began to speak to me how he's zealous. He is jealously, zealously pursuing his purposes for my family, both up the generational line, down the generational line, side to side. And I know that that is not unique to me. That is not unique to my family. Although the Lord was speaking to me personally, uh, that is a word for all of us. God is jealous for what he has placed in us as families. And we need to understand that, that, that God has a generational purpose. Uh, you know, we've been looking at the blood of Jesus and we were looking at... Uh, how we use the blood personally. Last week, we were looking at the Passover. And really, the Passover is how is the blood of Jesus, or the the blood of the Lamb, rather, it was applied nationally to the children of Israel. Uh, And that was their national deliverance. And there is a national implication. There is, as Westerners, we like to talk about the personal implications of the blood of Jesus, the blood of the Lamb for us. And that's valid. Both of those are valid uh, perspectives, and we need to mind those out. But what I want to talk to you about this morning is the familial application of the blood of Jesus. How does the blood apply to our family? What I really want to teach you about this morning is how do you use the blood of Jesus as a weapon to fight for your family? Not just defensively as protection. That's what we looked at last week. Uh, You know, in the the Passover, the picture was they would take a lamb for every household. They would would, uh, kill that lamb, drain its blood, roast the lamb, and they were to lock themselves in their house not to go out. And they would bring their extended family under the roof of that house and they would paint the blood of that lamb, that sacrificial lamb, on the lentil, the the doorposts of their home. 
And so then they would close that door. They would hide behind that door. They would consume the meat of the lamb. And scripture says that as the, the destroyer would pass through, God says, I will pass over you. And it's not that the, the destroying angel would pass over. Literally, that word Passover meant God would protect. He would lay himself really over the door. The, it's speaking of the entry points into that household. So with that house, the physical structure was a type of the household. It was a, a picture of that household, that family, that father's lineage. And the Lord would, he would, he would lay himself over, he would cover that so the destroyer could not enter. And it's a picture of the blood of Jesus being a protection or a defensive weapon for our families. Now we've been talking about this, how the blood has an application towards God. God is our biggest problem. If we don't solve the problem of God, all our other problems are irrelevant. We need, to, we need to solve the problem of God. And the blood of Jesus satisfies the demand of heaven. The blood of Jesus also satisfies our individual demand, our personal demand. And that is the difference between the shed blood and the sprinkled blood. The shed blood uh, was offered to God, but the sprinkled blood sanctified the worshiper, sanctified the priest, sanctified the law. Uh, it was a sanctifying agent. And the New Testament uses that terminology that the sprinkled blood cleanses our hearts of a guilty conscience. So the shed blood is for God. The sprinkled blood is for us. The shed blood applies it towards heaven. The sprinkled blood applies it towards ourselves, cleansing us of a guilty conscience. And then there is that third application, the blood of Jesus used as a weapon towards the enemy. So there's an application towards heaven, an application on earth, and an application towards hell. Now this, the blood of Jesus as a weapon, it's both a defensive weapon where we protect ourselves, we protect our family by the blood of Jesus, that picture of the destroyer passing over because they couldn't, couldn't cross the bloodline. That's a valid thing. We talked about that last week, but that's not what I'm talking about this week. What I want to talk about this week is the blood of Jesus as an offensive weapon to fight for your family, fight for the generations of your home to fight for your legacy and all that God has put in with, within you. And we see this principle in the book of Revelation when it says that they overcame him, the accuser, one of the terminologies used for the enemy, the accuser, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony, and they love not their life unto the death. That first weapon was an offensive weapon we find in the blood of the lamb. So they, they learn to use the blood as an offensive weapon. And that's what we want to look at this morning. So let's go ahead and pray. I'm going to ask you, just lay your hand on your heart. Father, I thank you for your anointing here this morning. I thank you for the outpouring of the spirit that I have felt since I came to the office this morning in worship throughout this time. And Lord, I'm asking that your anointing would go through the waves. Uh, Lord, the radio waves, the, the internet, Lord, that you would touch us this morning. And Father, more than that, I ask for a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you, that you would open the eyes of our understanding, that we would be enlightened. Lord, that you would give us downloads from heaven. Lord, like Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter one, that we would know what we already have. Lord, I ask that you would help us to understand how to use the blood as a weapon 
against the enemy in an offensive way that we would go out and take back what the enemy has stolen. Lord, that you would help us to fight for our families with the blood. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the elements of the blood of Jesus uh, is that the blood can be used in an offensive way. And one of the ways in which we do that is fighting for our homes. Uh, again, the Lord spoke to me. He said, I am zealous for your legacy. And I knew what he was speaking of was the generational legacy, the, the legacy of the Olsons that have come from me. And again, that's not, that is not unique to me. Psalm 78. We, we want to look there this morning. I had you turn there. Psalm 78. Listen to what it says. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching and Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generation. So in, in this passage, this was written by Asaph, it's, it's, it's attributed to Asaph, one of the, the Levitical priests, the worship leaders under David's ministry, and he's applying this to a multiple generational application. It says, uh, the, we're gonna, will we not hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders he has done. In other words, we're going we're gonna to remind our children and our children's children about what the Lord has done. But it's more than just generally what God has done. It's specifically what God had done in their family. Look at what it says in verse 5. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children. So he was telling the Israelite people, listen, you had a great, 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 great grandfather named Jacob, and I'm establishing a testimony in the lineage of Jacob. And it's important that you pass down those stories down through the generational lines. This is an important element because what it does is it gives a sense of identity to a family and a sense of awareness of God's hand on that family line. It's important that we keep record a, a testimony of what the Lord has done in our personal lives because those become the testimony that we pass down through the generations. And through that, we begin to develop a history, his story in our family lineage. And we pass it down and it gives a sense of identity, a sense of purpose that this family, that God's hand is on our family. I was raised in a godly home. My father was a first-generation Christian, is a first-generation Christian. My mother is a second-generation believer. And we, at my father as a first-generation, my mother as second-generation, her, her mother had come to know the Lord. Uh, they had already begun to accumulate the stories of God's redemption. And I, I, I was raised with these stories. And even when I backslid, there were still these stories that would come away. I remember when I was homeless, uh, my mother and father had kicked me out of the house at 16. They should have probably done it a little before then because I was a 
tremendously rebellious kid. I was uh, addicted to alcohol and drugs. And my, so my dad kicked me out of the house. It, uh, it was similar to what God said to Moses. He said, he said, I will not go with you lest I kill you. It got to the place where my dad and I couldn't live under the same roof. And since, since he was paying for the bills, it was his option to have me leave and not him leave. And uh, so... I was living on the streets and I remember I went to visit my mom and dad and I was arrogant in my sin and I was bragging about how I had a T-bone steak the night before. And uh, later on, I found out my mom went to the Lord and she said, Lord, this is not right that my son who's not serving you is eating better than us because it's going to make him think that you don't provide for us. Uh, The economy, the bottom of the economy had fallen out during that time. It was in the early 80s and a tumble was greatly affected and my dad didn't have work at that time and so my mom just said Lord you need to supply for us and she she went to the Lord and, and uh, just prayed and that Sunday night they were in church and a, a prophetic minister was in church that night and he pointed he called my mom and dad out he didn't know them from Adam he pointed out he said hey this couple he said have them stand he said everybody I want you to bring groceries for them tonight they need groceries and uh, so that night there was carloads of groceries that was brought to the church and I just happened to drop by my mom and dad's house when those groceries were being unpacked and there was food everywhere and my mom she was bragging on Jesus and talking about how the Lord supplied and that stood out to me as a young man running from God how God had provided for them that was the testimony he was establishing in my family the deliverance of my mom and dad as young people and so forth these stories became part of my history that I could draw from. And so it says, he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children, that the next generation might know them, that the children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children, so that they would set their hope in God and not forget the works of God. And that's the end zone. God's saying that if we will keep the testimony of what he has done in our families alive, we will we pass the those down the generations and it will cause our children to turn their hearts toward God and to put their hope in God. He goes on, then they will keep his commandments that they should not be like their fathers. Now he's going to juxtapose this, contrast them over against a generation who failed to do so and the, the, the results were dismal. He says that they should be, not be like their fathers, a stubborn, rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The Ephraimites, now he talks about this one tribe and how they had failed to keep the testimony and look at what happened. The Ephraimites are armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. It says that they had everything they needed to win the battle. They were armed. They were armed and dangerous, but they turned and ran from the enemy. Why? They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. Verse 11 tells us why. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had done, that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan. He divided the sea. And it goes on to relay the testimony that God established in the children of Israel in 
he established in Jacob. And because they forgot to pass it down, there came a generation that although they had what they needed to win the battle, they turned and ran tail. They tucked their tail between their legs and ran because they had forgot the testimony of the Lord. It's important that we keep the testimony. And that's more than simply obeying the testimonies or the edicts of God. There's an element of the testimony. This word testimony here, it, it means the precepts, the law, the, the instructions, the precepts that God had laid down. But it also has another meaning of witness. Somebody who is a witness to the deeds of God. And that is the context of this passage. That they had forgotten what God had done. They'd forgotten to pass down the testimony, the, the wonders of what God had done, and it caused them to no longer put their trust in God. It's very important that we do this with our children. And part of the testimony that God is establishing in every one of our homes, again, what the Lord spoke to me is not unique to me, and what God did in Jacob is not unique to Jacob. God does this in every family. He's establishing a testimony, and then he becomes jealously, zealously in pursuit of the purposes that he establishes through that family. God will speak to us about our lives. And often what he speaks to us will only be partially fulfilled in our lifetime. I was listening the other day to a guy on a podcast and he said this. He said, the Lord told me that what he told me about my life may not be fulfilled in my lifetime, but it will be fulfilled in my bloodline. I want you to catch that. What isn't fulfilled, the promises that are not fulfilled in your lifetime will be accomplished through your bloodline. But one of the essential components to that happening is that we must pass down the testimony, what God has done in the past, and the prophecies, what God told us he's going to do in the future. And those begin to shape the identity of the present generation and the future generations. It's like a spiritual coat of arms that carry the code. It carries the destiny of our family, both the testimonies, what he's done in the past, our history, and the prophecies, what he's promised to do in the future, begin to shape the identity in the present and begin to zero in and cause our children to put their hope in God. And so we need to understand that God is his forging a purpose in every family. That God has a purpose for your life, but it's more than just your life. It's under the banner of your household. That's why there's a lamb for every house, because there's a purpose that, are be, that is being redeemed in every household. God is out to redeem the purposes that he established for you and for your family. And we need to understand, how do we fight for those purposes? We don't want to let the enemy rob God of the glory through our lives that by simply sitting down and allowing the enemy to ravage our household, God has given us the power. He's given us the responsibility, the authority to go and begin to use the blood of Jesus in a proactive, offensive way and go to battle to fight for the legacy and the generations of our home. And that's what we're talking about this morning. 
So this whole concept of, of God giving you a promise and making, you know, uh, God placing a call on your life and giving you a promise, a prophetic promise, and then you not seeing it realized in your life. This, this is a, a, an immensely scriptural principle that often we fail to realize. And when we fail to realize it, we can die feeling like God didn't come through on his promise. And we can wrongly conclude that either we did something wrong and didn't fulfill the call, or God, God forbid, come to the conclusion that God himself was unfaithful and that he didn't fulfill his promise, or that we heard wrong and it wasn't a promise after all. But that is not necessarily the case. The fact is God gives promises in one generation that will be lived out generationally over multiple generations. And it's up to us to hear clearly, to record those things as part of the testimony that he is establishing in our family line. There's something unique that not only individuals carry in God, but families carry in God. And it is incumbent upon you to press in and say, God, what is the unique testimony? What is the unique purpose of my family line? What is it that you want to communicate and release on planet earth through my lineage? And we need to fight for that. That is part of our legacy, part of the coat of arms, if you will, that bears the crest of our name, that God wants to bring something unique to the earth through your family. And this is very scriptural. We see this in Hebrews chapter 11, that there's those who received a promise and though they did not receive the promise, they died believing. And of those, it says the world is not worthy. It says it was a legitimate promise. It was legitimate faith, but there was no fulfillment in their generation. Why? Because it says together with us, those of us living after them, only together with us could they be made perfect. That word perfect means complete. The completion of the promise, there is a multiple generation, generational application to the promise so that the perfection or the culmination, the completion of that promise is a multi-generational thing. And so we can start something, but if it's not passed to our children and our children's children, then we can fail to see the fullness of that thing happen. And so Hebrews 11 talks of those who even willingly forego the fulfillment of the promise. Consciously say, God, I'll defer the fulfillment so that together with the next generation, I'll take my investment and roll it over to them so that when they move into the fullness of that promise, we both get a better fulfillment together. We see this in the life of David. David carried promises. David had, was the one who had a new covenant revelation while living in the old covenant. David was the one that had a revelation of the priesthood of Melchizedek. Now we know that Moses wrote of Melchizedek, but in Moses' mind, Moses or Melchizedek was this strange anomaly in redemptive history. He was a one-off individual who was a priest of the Most High God, but he was an individual priest, but it was David, King David, who had a revelation because David was not only a, a king, he was a prophet. And in Psalm 110, we see that David spoke of the order of the priesthood of Melchizedek. It was David that understood that Melchizedek was not one anomaly, one, a one-off individual, this anomaly in history, but that he, God had established a mysterious 
overarching priesthood that was in actuality the eternal priesthood. And it was the Levitical priesthood that was the temporary one. And David, because he had a revelation, the revelation was the invitation. David literally stepped out of the covenant in which he lived that limited other people. And David stepped into the new covenant priesthood of Melchizedek in the Old Testament. That is why David could make sacrifices, wear the linen ephod, and do things that to others would have been illegal, but David did by revelation. What Saul attempted to do by rebellion, David successfully did by revelation. Saul had the kingdom stripped of him for the very things that David did by revelation. David made a sacrifice to God. David was not allowed to do that as a Levitical priest, but he did it as the priesthood of Melchizedek. Wore a linen ephod, the, the garment of a priest, and danced before the Lord. And he had the audacity to reach out of the covenant that he was in, the old covenant, for which there were two sins there was no forgiveness for, adultery and murder. Under the old covenant, you were the sacrifice. There was no provision for redemption, no provision for forgiveness. But David, as the king, committed both adultery and murder and then had the audacity in Psalm 51 to cry out for mercy. And God gave him mercy. Why? There was no provision under the covenant in which David was living. But David had reached into the future, the powers of the age to come, by revelation, and pulled it into the present. David had a promise. David created what is known as the tabernacle of David, a place where God was worshipped. And then David had this word. David had this thing rise up in his heart, this desire, and he said, I, it is not right that I live in such a beautiful palace. Well, God lives, you know, God doesn't, he, he has this pup tent. I want to create a temple for the Lord. And the prophet Nathan told him, not under inspiration, but said, hey, go and do it, whatever's in your heart. And the Lord spoke to Nathan to circle back around and say, David, you're not going to do this, but your son will, because you're a man of blood. And you see the call upon David's life to provide a resting place for the Lord was a call that began with David, but was continued and fulfilled by the next generation. And this is often how the Lord works. And if we don't understand this, we can get, we can become disillusioned and feel like uh, either we failed or God failed us when in reality, God's promises are multi-generational. That is why God uh, identifies himself with a multi-generational title. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's an amazing thing. This multiple generational designation over God. And God is the same to your family. He is the God of you, the generations of your home. And when we have a revelation for that, when we begin to realize there's a reason that God established our family. There's a reason. God has established a testimony in the Olson household. God has established a testimony. Put your name in there. God has established a testimony that's to come through you to the generations of your household. And that's something we offer to the Lord. There is a measure of glory a perspective of glory of the nature and character of God that your family alone carries.
And God longs, he is jealous, he is zealous to see that brought forth. And he will partner with you to fight for your legacy. Because it's God that put that legacy, that potential, that dream, those prophecies, that desire within you. Just like he placed it within David. A desire to provide a resting place. And then told David, you you are going to store up the provisions for the temple, but it will be your son who realizes the fullness of this desire. God will put within our our heart a desire. And in a very real sense, by how we pour into our family and the generations of our house, our children and our children's children and our children's children's children, in that way, we are providing for the purposes of the generational call on our life. And God simply snowballs that thing each generation. And it gets bigger like a snowball that rolls down a hill and gains momentum and it gets bigger and bigger. God adds to it each generation. But there's that original seed that was given to the patriarchs. God wants to get you jealous and zealous for the purpose that he put within you. And he wants to teach you to use the blood of Jesus to go after that destiny, that legacy, so that you can offer the glory of that thing, the fulfillment of the thing, the the glory of the fulfillment to King Jesus. That we live our lives. There's, it's a beautiful thing in scripture that we, we're, we, we receive multiple crowns. There's the New Testament mentions several different types of crowns given for different things. And the king of kings places a crown on our head because we are kings and priests. But around the throne, we will then take our crowns and we'll lay them at his feet and worship him. And in a very real sense, we're taking the sum total of our life the, the, the deeds of our life that have gone through the blast furnace of his justice. And he boils it down. And I believe that, that 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the judgment that we go through, not, not judgment as in uh, being able to, for eternal life, that's already been taken care of by Jesus on Calvary. But it's that the, the white throne of judgment that as believers we stand, or the judgment seat of Christ, we stand before him and he weighs what we did with what he called us to do. He looks at what the purposes he had for us and how did we steward those purposes. And it will boil those down, our works will be boiled down and he'll make a crown to place upon our head. And as we worship him, what we do is we take that, that unit, that crown, which is the sum total of how we lived, and all over again in one extravagant act, I'll be able to give my life to him again as I bow before him and I say, Jesus, here's everything boiled down into one thing that I bear upon my head and I give it all again. Lord, if I could have done more, I would have had more gems and jewels. I would have had more to give you, but Lord, I bow before you and I give you my life. We need to be jealous and zealous for what God is, the purposes God has placed within us and understand the generational implication that God wants to fulfill through your lineage something that's going to be offered to him and give him great glory, not only in history, but in eternity. And so we see this in this passage. If we don't understand these things, we can in actuality sabotage the ability of the next generation to follow after him. 
one of the primary impetuses for our children, one of the primary motivations, one of the primary instigations of faith that awaken within our heart are the stories of what God has done in the past and the prophecies of what he said he'll do in the future. And when we're able to give that, it's like fuel in the furnace of our children's hearts that will motivate them to follow after God. And so we need to understand there's a testimony he wants to fulfill. And what is not fulfilled in our lifetime is intended to be fulfilled through our bloodline. Now, there is this thing of the enemy attempting to rob us of our destiny, both as individuals and as a family. And we need to understand how to use the blood of Jesus as a weapon to go in and fight for the legacy that God has given us. Fight for the, the future of our children and our children's children. And I want to speak especially to those of you this morning who have children and grandchildren that are running from God. I want to give you some keys this morning on how we go and fight. We're going to go into the enemy's camp and begin to fight for the, the destiny on our children's lives and on our children's children and our children's children's children. Scripture talks about the vicarious, uh, vicarious repentance. It talks about... Uh, Vicarious is a theological term that we refer to Jesus' sacrifice, his death, and his suffering as vicarious suffering. He suffered in our stead. In other words, he took upon himself the suffering that we deserved so that we wouldn't have to suffer it, and therefore we can move into the blessing that he deserved. And that suffering, in theological terms, is called vicarious suffering. It means to to experience in the stead of or in, in the place of. It's vicarious. Well, if Jesus could suffer in our place, then there is this thing called vicarious suffering. Now, what we need to understand is there's also this thing called vicarious repentance. The, the, the first person I know of that ever used that term of vicarious suffering was a missionary by the name of R.E. Miller. And I believe it was him that, that uh, coined that phrase and took that terminology from theology, vicarious suffering, and applied it to intercession and, uh, intercession and ministry. And he called it vicarious repentance. He was a missionary that was called to Argentina. And he had been a missionary in Argentina for a number of years and frankly had very little fruit to show for it and had always reasoned in his mind and made a lot of justifications why he, you know, they weren't seeing a lot of breakthrough and, and he just made all these excuses. But God began to deal with his heart. And finally, the Lord cornered him and made him, uh, brought him to the place where he realized that the problem is me. And he began to cry out to God. And the Lord challenged him and said, I want you to dedicate in intercession and seeking me. I want you to dedicate the amount of time that you do to your normal missionary work. I want you to dedicate that to intimacy. And so that's what he did. He began to seek the Lord for 8, 10, 12 hours a day. And he did it for a number of months. And God began to deal with him. And he began to cry out for the nation of Argentina. 
And finally, after about six months of this, he got so discouraged, he thought, God, how are you ever going to move in this nation? Because he would still have church on Sundays, and it was dead. The churches were empty, and it just seemed like there was no movement. And so finally, he told the Lord one day, he said, Lord, if you don't move by, and I forget the time, I want to say it was 9 p.m. tonight. If you don't give me a sign, I'm going to take it that I missed you and that this must not have been you. And I'm going to go back to my old way of doing missionary work and just realize that I'm not one of those special people that you use. I'm not one of those anointed people. And so he was praying and fasting and crying out to the Lord that day. And around nearing the, the mark, I, I believe it was 9 p.m. He was getting on the clock close to that time. And the closer it got, the more discouraged it got, he got. And all of a sudden, there was a knock at his door. And he went and opened the door. And there was an a, uh, Argentine pastor and his black, backslidden son. And the pastor said, would you please counsel my son? He's running from God and I'm just so concerned about his soul. And Ari Miller was really discouraged himself and feeling distracted, but out of compassion and, and to honor this fellow pastor, he said, sure. And they sat down at the table and he began to talk to this young man. And the young man was disinterested as they're sitting there listening. And all of a sudden, in an instant, the young man fell off his chair and began to weep in repentance on the floor. And the Lord spoke to Ari Miller and said, I can use you whenever I want. Now get back to what I told you to do. And Ari Miller said, yes, sir. Went on for several more months of intercession and then revival began to break out. I won't go into the details. It's a wonderful story. But it was during this season that a season of, of repentance began to break out in the Bible school there in Buenos Aires. And they began to weep. They had this angel came into the school and, and manifested and, they, and terror struck everyone. They began to cry out to God on their faces. And all of a sudden, repentance began to grip them. And they were praying for eight hours a day and they would weep. There was one story of one young man that was leaning against a porous brick wall. And literally, there were there was tear stains going down the, the wall, this porous wall. And finally, after six hours, he was standing in a pool of his own tears. It's physically impossible. It was a supernatural thing, the ability to get under the load. And they were crying out and repenting of their sins and the sins of Argentina. It's a principle that's taken directly out of Daniel chapter 9, where Daniel says, I was confessing my sins and the sins of my people Israel when the angel of the Lord appeared to him and gave him a message from the throne of God. But it was on the heels of him praying for his, confessing his sins and the sins of his people. It's a strange phrase if we don't understand this principle of vicarious repentance. You see, Jesus suffered for us so that we don't have to go to hell. But we need to repent. But as intercessors, we can even step into the gap and begin to lift the load off of those who are still running from God so that God can begin to deal with their hearts. Second Corinthians chapter four speaks very clearly. It says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbeliever. It says that there are blinders on their minds so that they cannot see. That the enemy literally comes in and begins to dull their ability to grasp, to comprehend the things of God. 
I can't see that passage, look at that passage, think about that passage without remembering how it was for me as a young man, 16, 17 years old. I was raised in church, knew the Lord, had, had been baptized in the spirit, walked with God as a kid and turned my back on the Lord at about 14 years of age. And I went deep into darkness, What got into the drug culture, uh, into, uh, I became an alcoholic when I was a teenager, lived on the streets, get, got, uh, got into some occultic things without even realizing it and had, I'd have visitation from demons and would see the, the demonic and, and uh, all these types of things. And when people would preach to me, I knew the truth of the gospel, but it's like I couldn't grasp it. it my mind was dull. It was like it was a, uh, an unattainable thing to reach out and accept Jesus. And then there was a little group of intercessory ladies in Ottumwa, Iowa at First Church of the Open Bible. And they began to pray for me and pray for me and pray for me. It would be years later that one of them saw me in a mall after I'd gotten saved and she came up to me and she began to cry and she said, Dave, I'll never forget when you were still running from God one Sunday night. She said, I got so burdened for you. She said, I laid on the altar and just wept and wept and wept and cried out for your soul. That was supernatural burden from heaven so though those blinders would lift off of me. And I'll never forget, it was about September uh, of 1983 that all of a sudden those things began to lift and I began to see what was really going on in my life. And I began to have this hunger, this desire for God and I got saved. But it was a process where this darkness began to lift off of me. And I believe it's directly attributable to the intercessors that got under my load of sin and began to cry out on my behalf so that darkness would begin to lift and I could see the truth. It's, Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. I love that phrase. Let me say it again. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus was shed abroad in my heart. And the God who spoke into darkness and said, let there be light, spoke into my life and said, let there be light. And that formless void creation in my life entered into recreation and I was born again. But it's because somebody got under the load of sin. What we need to realize is we can vicariously repent. We can move in and begin to do war for our children and our children's children, for our loved ones that don't yet know the Lord or have walked away from God. We can come under the, the load of that thing and begin to lift it by confessing their sin. See, one of the principles of deliverance, and those of you, if you've ever uh, prayed with someone that is, uh, you know, demonically oppressed, and uh, if you've ever uh, had to cast demons out of somebody, you know that once you get into that, if you don't deal with the legal rights of that spiritual entity, it can get messy. It doesn't need to be the, the battle, the, uh, this, you know, drawn out thing that it, you, you thought it would have to be. I remember when, when I, the first time I ever 
cast a, a demon out of someone. It was out of a three-year-old child in a Christian daycare that I worked in. I said, every, I was teaching on Jesus, and every time I'd say the word Jesus, the little boy would stick his fingers in his ears. He was a cantankerous little boy. So I just reached over, just kind of out of impulse, put my hand on his head. I said, in the name of Jesus. And as soon as I did, his eyes began to roll back in his head, and he began to swallow his tongue and go into convulsions. And uh, that spirit left that little boy. And I've seen it again and again. But when I first began, we'd get people that were into the occult and Satanism into Teen Challenge. And we'd begin to address those demonic things. And they would go through deliverance, dramatic deliverance. And I saw all kinds of crazy things. And they would get free and they would physically look different. But because I didn't understand the principle of dealing with the legal rights, often it was a long, drawn out, messy thing. And often they wouldn't remain free because we didn't deal with the legal right that spirit had to be there. You see, we need to look at the legal uh, right that an, the enemy has. And there's, uh, there's usually three primary things. If you don't have any direction from the Lord and you're dealing with uh, a demonic oppression, possession in someone's life, and you address that thing in the name of Jesus, and there's no movement or there's a manifestation, but that thing's being stubborn, then the go-to thing is bitterness, because scripture's very clear that if it says, don't let the sun go down in your wrath, don't give the enemy a foothold. Unforgiveness gives the enemy a foothold. Matthew 18 says that if we don't forgive, we'll be turned over to the tormentors. And so unforgiveness gives the devil a foothold. It gives him legal ground. That word is a military word in Ephesians where we give the enemy a foothold or legal ground to, uh, to stand on. And so we need to... And we need to lead that person through forgiveness and through repentance so that the enemy no longer has a handle in their soul to hold on to, so he has to leave. So in dealing with the legal precedents, we can disarm the enemy, strip him of accusation, and he has to give up the ground and he has to give, he no longer has that access. Well, what do we, what do, we do before a person repents? Well, we can go to war for our family. We can go to the Lord and we can go into the courts of heaven through intercession and begin to cry out on their behalf and begin to plead the blood of Jesus, get before the throne and ask God, Lord, I'm asking God that the blood of Jesus, he absorbed their suffering on the cross. The, 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 the suffering that they, uh, they deserve, just like I deserve, Jesus absorbed that. And Lord, I know that there needs to be repentance on their part, but Lord, I'm asking God on their behalf, please forgive them. And I'm asking in, in scripture, Matthew 18 says, what we forgive, God has given us the authority to forgive. Uh, and he says, if we forgive, those sins are forgiven. And what we refuse to forgive, those sins are not forgiven. And so as we go before the throne and we say, Lord, we're asking for, that you would forgive them. And we get under the load of that thing. We literally begin to lift the legal right for that darkness to be resident in their life. The enemy to have uh, access to their heart and accusation and depression and those things. We can literally lift that so God can begin to deal with their heart. And like Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that the blinders on their eyes begin to be stripped away because the God who says, let there be light, says, let there be light and strips the blinders so that the light of the knowledge of the glory of God and the face of Christ Jesus can be shed abroad in their hearts. I want to encourage you, mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, uncle, aunt, 
that you get a vision for the call of God on your household. The Passover lamb, it said, one for every household according to the house of that father. There is a family name that you were born under and that you live under. And there's a legacy that's tied to that, that God is hungry to redeem. God wants to give you a vision for what the purpose of your family is. And he wants to give you vengeance on the enemy. Some of that, some of you, you're a first generation believer and there's been generations the enemy's ravaged. God wants to restore what the locust hath eaten. He wants to give you back in this generation what has been taken in numerous generations. He wants to give you the spiritual legacy. He wants, to, he wants to give to you those things that have been robbed of your family so that you have a legacy, a spiritual legacy to pass on for generations of your home. But we need to go to war. If you have kids or grandkids, great-grandkids, nieces and nephews, that are running from God, I want to encourage you, let's go before the throne and let's remind the Lord of the purposes over our family. Moses did this with the children of Israel. Moses, as the father, so to speak, of the nation, when God said, I'm going to destroy them, they deserve justice. And God said, I'm going to destroy them and I'm going to make a nation out of you, Moses. It wasn't going to be the nation of Israel. It was going to be the nation of Mo. And most people would have thought, hey, this is great, but not Moses. He was a true intercessor. And he went before the Lord and he reminded the Lord of the promises. And he said, Lord, for your namesake, what are the pagans going to believe when they know that you brought us out here just to destroy us? He was appealing to the nature and character and the fame of his name. Moses was jealous for God's glory. And God responded to those prayers. And we can use the same approach when we are jealous for the glory that God will receive through our family. God will begin to move in the lives of our family and we begin to stand in the gap and we repent vicariously and come before the throne and say, God, I'm asking you to forgive my children. I'm asking you to forgive my grandchildren. I'm asking you to forgive my nieces, my nephews. Lord, I'm asking you to forgive my mom, my dad. Lord, we're, we're asking that for your namesake, Lord. Lord, for your glory that you would preserve the purposes that you were going to accomplish through this family. God, we want to lay the crown that you intended before your throne as a family. We want to, those, that just like the royal family passes down the royal jewels, the royal gems down through the, the, the generations, the royal crowns. We want to, as a family, have these crowns and we worship him and we say, Jesus, if we could do it all over again, we want to give our lives to you once again. And in eternity, we lay before him all that's been accumulated, all that's been accomplished, all that has uh, happened, the glory of, to his name that has happened through our family line, we lay it before his feet. So I want us to pray this morning. I want us to pray for our families. And I want you to just right now, Bring to mind the, the family members that you have a burden for. And I want you to think about the worst case scenarios in your family line right now. Those who are running the farthest and the hardest from God. 
Often those are the very ones that God's call is upon in a special way. And the enemy has gone after them because of the call on their life. I want us to pray for them right now. Father, we just pray for our family members. Lord, we pray for our family line, our family name. And Father, we're asking that you would redeem them. That you would redeem the legacy Lord, let us sense your jealousy, jealousy, the zeal in your heart for the purposes that you've put within our family. And Lord, give us a revelation of how we can get under the load of that thing and use the blood of Jesus to answer on their behalf. I want to encourage you, Continue to do battle with the blood. The blood of Jesus satisfies God. And you can come before the throne and say, God, I'm asking that, Lord, you, the, the blood of Jesus on behalf of my lost loved ones. Lord, visit them. Visit them. The spirit comes on the blood. The spirit comes on the blood. Apply the blood to your family and the convicting spirit will come. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.